everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the elected chief prosecutor in St. Louis, Kim Gardner. She was first elected in 2016, and she's made the news in some interesting ways this year. Welcome to our show, Kim. Thank you. Appreciate it. So earlier this year, you made national headlines filing a federal civil rights suit accusing the city, police union, and others of a coordinated and racist conspiracy aimed at forcing you out of office. To what extent can you talk about this and kind of tell us what this was about? Well, the the suit is about the people and the people who elected me to reform the criminal justice system that we all know is broken. And the suit is about silencing the, the will of the people through a concerted ways of uh, the few of the powerful few that are in St. Louis that has uh, made it difficult for the elected prosecutor of the city of St. Louis to reform a broken criminal justice system and keep things the same. So this is the small status quo and the powerful few who have used different tactics to stop reform in the city of St. Louis. And that's why this is so important. What problems have you seen with the police force and what are your efforts to try to expose those problems? Well, I think it's, a, it's not just the police force. It's, it's, it's this flawed approach of a system that has failed all of us in communities like St. Louis, where we have this, this idea that somehow the tough on crime rhetoric of, and perpetuation of mass incarceration makes us safer and it does not. What we have is a system that has caused more harm and has caused victims as well as the community to feel less safe. And for my prosecutor and what we've been doing is looking at how we reduce harm by preventing harm as well as holding people accountable, but being smart on 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 how we do those things. And we use many tools to address public safety. And I think that's where we face challenges because we have this one-size-fits-all approach of the status quo to, to say the only um, option is a jail cell or a long period of time on probation, and that has not made us safer. That's just perpetuating mass incarceration, a flawed proposition that I say has made us less safe. And what have you learned from the system given how hard they've pushed back against your efforts? Well, I think um, what I've learned and and being in this this role is that being the first African-American female 
prosecutor or African-American prosecutor in the city of St. Louis in this position. Um, as you've probably heard from other um, elected African-American females, what we face is um, scrutiny like no other. So even our other male colleagues who are in this reform space, the criticism and the scrutiny is a little bit different. I'm not saying they don't have a hard role in, in certain barriers, but the um, the way the intersection of sexism and racism and the way that we are stopped and our discretion is challenged at every uh, second, it's a it's a problem. And it, it, that's why this lawsuit is important, because it's not about Kim Gardner. It's not about us. It's about the people and the will of the people who elected us to make the reform effort that we were elected to enact in our jurisdiction. And a powerful few are trying to usurp the power of the prosecutor in many different ways. Specifically, even this weekend in St. Louis, we have the legislator who in Jeff City has now kicked my office out as the only prosecutor's office to grant the attorney general concurrent jurisdiction in certain types of um, criminal prosecution cases, which is never been done in the history of, of any prosecutor's office around the state of Missouri. I'm one out of 115 total prosecutors in the state of Missouri, and I'm the only one singled out with concurrent jurisdiction. So this, this sentiment and this, uh, this trend to usurp the will of the people is, is, is real in the city of St. Louis and the state of Missouri. How are you going to try to fight the effort by the, uh, by the legislature to kind of usurp your power? Well, we're fighting on many different fronts. On the policy front, you know, we're um, making a call to action, working with the Missouri Association of Prosecutors Association to, one, stop the legislation because it's a dangerous slope that, that the legislators get into to silence the will of the people who elect prosecutors in their jurisdiction. And they should be able to hold that individual accountable. We have election every four years. And if that, if our jurisdiction feels that what we're doing is not what they want to see, they can unelect us. And that's the accountability piece that we need to keep intact. And that's, that's central to, um, people's vote. And I think that how we, um, are fighting that is we're advocating on the legislative side to stop legislation. But at the same time, this civil rights lawsuit speaks to the impediments that have been um, unprecedented in, in this jurisdiction when it comes to the first um, African-American female prosecutor in the city of St. Louis and the, the roadblocks that have been placed to silence the will of the people. It's not about me, it's about the people and their voice. And, you know, we've, we've seen a little bit of this pushback in other jurisdictions. Larry Krasner uh, has faced a little bit, um, you know, Aramis Ayala down in Florida is actually not running again because they try, uh, they took away death penalty uh, discretion from her. And even in, in places like liberal San Francisco, there's been tremendous pushback against Chesa Bodine. Uh, but it, it seems like uh, what what's happening in St. Louis is, is unprecedented, even on those scales. I believe so, because it's a coordinated effort that is by the powerful few. And that's why this, this is important. And that's why, you know, I was honored when my fellow um, female African-American prosecutors came down and support me in my efforts, not about me, but about the attacks on real. And we have to stand together to prevent this unprecedented um, taking away the discretion of a prosecutor that everyone knows a prosecutor's discretion has been 
um, paramount to their, to their discretion in their job. And so when we start to, to piecemeal taking away discretion, we're taking away the will of the people, and we have elections for that. Um, the people vote us in, and the people can vote us out. And while we deciding to, by the legislator or anyone, to take away the will of the people, and that's a dangerous slope that I don't think that anyone wants to go go down. And I think we have to stop this type of uh, measures and procedures, as well as legislation. And it's central to to us and and our democracy. So I think that this is important. But I think that in Missouri. We have a powerful few that have coordinated together and is setting the, the kind of a trend of the training ground of what can happen to other reformers and prosecutors if people decide to, to work together in a concerted effort, how they're doing in, in St. Louis. So it, it, we have to watch it and we have to stop it. Yeah, it's just interesting because you never see legislators push back when the prosecutor is corrupt, when the prosecutor is being overly tough, when the prosecutor commits repeated acts of prosecutorial misconduct. It's only when they try to reform the system that you see this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the problem I see is, is right now we have this, uh, this, this, this legislator is, is one trying to, to start this conversation that somehow they feel like they know what's best for the city of St. Louis or the St. Louis region in terms of safety. And I asked them, you know, I was a state legislator. The, the Attorney General Eric Smith was a state senator. And I was the only former prosecutor. I was the only, um, one of the rare House members who were the, you know, stood up on the House floor when we disintegrated our gun laws. We're basically we're a, a constitutional carry carry permitless state, stand your ground state. And we basically disintegrated our gun laws and he was the one that took that vote that made us less safe. And now to turn around and say, now because we disintegrated and made sure that prosecutors don't have enough tools to hold people accountable who need a gun, now we're gonna send these cases to the federal system, it's kind of like when you talk about safety, well, how about talk about putting back some of the restrictions on having guns in the wrong people's hands? But they don't want to talk about that. We always want to kick the can and have these conversations we know what's best. And so our legislator, unfortunately, has a trend of um, going against the will of the people on certain issues like guns, going against the will of the people when it comes to Medicaid expansion, going against the will of the people when it comes to um, raising minimum wage, going against the will of the people when it comes to funding social services. But these are the things that reduce violent crime in the city of St. Louis or in, in the state of Missouri in areas where they have concentrated poverty and disinvestment and unemployment. And we need to fund our educational systems appropriately. So when I talk, when, I, when they have these legislations that they want to address violent crime, but they talk about a certain case, or to give it over to a certain individual, like the attorney general, well, he was the one that took that vote to reduce um, gun laws in our state and make those, those gun laws so lax that we have that we, we hardly have any tools. So I asked him, "What what are you what are you doing? You know, you are you are the one that caused us to be let's say. So for for him to act like now he wants to take on certain types of cases because he knows what's best, but he doesn't know what's best. So it's just this far proposition that we know how to attack violent crime, but 
how you attack violent crime is preventing crime and helping people who are least fortunate that drives individual crime, poverty, giving people equal opportunities to health care access, giving people equal opportunity to the resources and the social service. We all know we do individuals going further in the criminal justice system, but we don't want to talk like that in the jury. So backing up a step, um, what was your background before you ran for prosecutor and why did you decide uh, you wanted to run for prosecutor in the first place? Well, I was a former um, prosecutor in the office, um, assistant service attorney, and when I was there, one, my passion for public service grew because I lived in North City. I saw violence and destruction and what violence does to the community, and, and I loved being a prosecutor because I felt like we were the ones that could make a difference in the system in terms of holding people accountable, but I felt like we had very limited options in terms of how we address preventing harm and making sure people do not go further in the criminal justice system. And so that's what, what drove me into running for um, a state legislative position. I ran in 2008. I lost, but it fueled my passion for wanting to change, be about policy and understanding the root causes of what drives individuals to the criminal justice system. Looking at the lack of education, healthcare access, um, a lot of the job unemployment that drives individuals into the system, and the only thing we have is probation and parole, or we have a jail cell, which I think that that should be used for the most violent individuals, but not for everybody. And so that kind of fueled me in going further in terms of I'm also a registered nurse, so. That I have a public health lens in terms of looking at how we reduce violent crime in our criminal justice system and in our communities because this all intersects. I believe that the criminal justice system is like the emergency room. You see all the broken systems converge on one area, and we have very limited tools to do something about it, but we can by bringing those resources to address those inequities inside our office, and that's what we've done. We bring trauma-informed counseling. We, we bring... Um, addiction counseling, we do a lot of things inside our office. So that's kind of my background, and that's what people need to run for a uh, state legislator. And then eventually, when uh, my my predecessor decided to retire, I believe that we need to reform a system that is not only broken, it needs to be dismantled and rebuilt. And so that's what led me to run for the office. I never wanted to be the prosecutor of the city of St. Louis. I never thought I would win, but to help address violent crime in the city that I love because I love the community. I know the people want to feel safe and want to be safe. I believe that having those those different lenses of being a former prosecutor, being a registered nurse, gives me that ability to, to really address how we prevent violent crime and how we save people from going further in the system. And can you explain just briefly uh, how the prosecutor's office works because of the structure is slightly different than other places? Well, I'm cons- well in, in other places, I'm just, I'm considered the federal attorney, so I'm like the DA in other jurisdictions. And in other jurisdictions, the federal attorney actually is over juvenile. So in, in our jurisdiction, we're not over juvenile. So our prosecutor's office are just over the adult level of of state crime. So we, we only deal with state misdemeanor and felony cases. We do not do, deal with juveniles. So um, what what we do is 
one, and I do it because I'm a county within a county, so St. Louis City is different from the prosecutor attorney in St. Louis County. And at this, at this past year, we had a whole different court system, so we had two different types of functioning court systems that ran a little differently. Now we're on what's called an individual docketing system, so we're um, kind of developing a, a court system similar to St. Louis County, but it's, it's new because we had a centralized docketing system. But um, we prosecute, well, I prosecute cases only in the city of St. Louis, where Mr. Wesley Bell is a prosecuting attorney in St. Louis County. And so we have other jurisdictions like St. Charles County. And so we have 115 counties. But um, what's different about our jurisdiction is how we utilize alternative diversion programs to address those root causes, to bring services within our office, to really be about preventing crime as well as holding people accountable and utilizing all tools in the toolbox, really looking at harm reduction and public safety. And we're trying to be a part, active partner in the community. So we're not just the prosecutor when something happens to you. We want to actually engage you before something happens. So that's why we have created programs to go into the school system early to address young people going into any system because I'm not over juvenile. So because juvenile is a direct feeder into the, the adult system. So we use a, a public health lens in terms of developing our office and strengthening our tools and our toolbox. So we do um, focus on being smart on crime and having traditional prosecution. So we, we, we do um, try more cases than any other jurisdiction in the state of Missouri. And we have we see more violent cases than any other jurisdiction. So we're one of the hardest working prosecutor's offices compared to other prosecutor's offices in the state of Missouri. So how has your job changed uh, since the emergence of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Well, how has it changed is, one, being a, putting on the public health hat. You know, we saw this uh, serious uh, virus, and we had to, one, mitigate how we could stop the spread of COVID-19. And not only with inside our office, but in the whole courthouse and with the confined population. So from day one, we, um, my office was instrumental in working with many of our criminal justice partners to start going remotely before we actually had a stay at home order from the, um, the city of St. Louis or even when we had a stay at home order from the state of Missouri. So we, um, we made sure before any court orders, we, um, I had a skeleton crew of individuals that would rotate in the office to do the essential necessary dockets. We um, worked with the courts, and I let them know that we're going to continue out um, our cases that were not a high priority case 60 days out until we were able to have more um, um, uh, have a, a more of a plan with the courts, the Supreme Court, or what they're going to do with jurors and the jury panel. And so we've been working with the public defender's office and the courts to look at no, nonviolent low-level offenders, individuals help pre-trial, how we can safely release those individuals who are not a threat to public safety, and to um, make sure we prevent the spread of the of jail turn and the COVID-19 um, virus inside the confined jails for individuals to help pre-trial. So we've been working with the public defender's office, the courts, um, the um, Sheriff's office to, to really mitigate those instances, and we continue to to 
to play it by ear in terms of having a plan of action in our new reality of how we're going to move forward by slowly one, what is our plan if we have to reopen safely to protect the people, not just inside the jail, but actually who work inside the courtroom and the community. Because I believe that this plan is also a public safety issue that prosecutors have to be on the forefront of being in that conversation. And that's what we've been doing. That's our new reality in the city of St. Louis. Have you been pushing for things like zero bail and eliminating pretrial detention? Yes, we've been working with a um, court administrator and, like I said, the criminal justice partners to really um, look at how we can reduce uh, individuals being held who are low-level, nonviolent. Already before the COVID-19, most of our uh, misdemeanors are um, by summons. We already had a, a, a procedure where low-level felonies or issued by some is not a warrant. So those individuals have just a, a, a notification to come to court and a court date. So we had one of the, when people were looking at how we reduce the um, jail population of nonviolent individuals, we had the lowest number because these are things that we put in place before COVID-19. And we're constantly working with our partners to strengthen that, working with the bail project to make sure we include it in, in the conversation that there's individuals that need to have conditions that need to have a bond set that we're working with um, our community partners to make sure we safely um, refer individuals to resources while they're um, on bond or they're they're they're, they're needing to come to court so we're, we're looking at how we can strengthen that and you know we've done that working with Vera Entity who was our leading partner in helping us develop before the COVID-19 our plan of action to deal with um, the bail bond issue and pretrial issues. And even beside COVID, have you been pushing for bail reform? Yes. Yes, that's crucial. In in what way? What are you looking to do? Well, what, like I said before, we were the first to start um, issuing summonses for low-level felonies, which means that there's not a warrant that's put out when we issue a case. It's just a notification to come to court. We actually um, were first to work with um, Bail Project to kind of create a, a notification when they re- when they post bail for an individual that we may not agree. We're working with them to notify our victims as well as making sure that we advocate for appropriate like conditions, whether it's a stay away order, it's a GPS monitoring in some limited instances, but at the same time, we are uh, triaging low-level individuals where they're not being held pre-trial or they, they're not they're being held because of the fact that they cannot uh, pay a certain type of bond. So we're advocating for um, appropriately for uh, issues where we're not automatically fighting for someone to be held with a high bond. We're advocating for personal recharge. So we've been working and doing this work for, um, I mean, ever since I got into office, and working with Vera has been instrumental in directing those policies. So that's why when the COVID-19 issues hit, we did not have this uh, large population of individuals that we had to review that are nonviolent being held pretrial on um, some type of high bond. And there have been some high-profile wrongful conviction cases coming out of St. Louis. And... uh, including some cases where your office agreed with the defense on a wrongful conviction. Can you tell us about uh, that process and how how you've tried to reverse some of these? 
we'll thank you. Um, the, the biggest case is Mr. Lamar Johnson, which we recently heard last couple of weeks. Um, the first case we kind of be heard um, during the COVID-19 crisis um, by video conferencing. And right now we are trying to fight for the ability of prosecutors in Missouri to make sure if we have a mechanism, if we believe through our conviction integrity meeting, through a thorough investigation, if we believe a person has been wrongfully convicted, we have a mechanism to undo that wrongful conviction. And I believe we, we do have that mechanism. It's called motion for new trial, which we utilize in Mr. Lamar Johnson, which, as you know, that is the big um, legal issue because the attorney general stepped in and said, no, we don't have the, the authority to do this. And um, that's what we're arguing. We're arguing whether we have the will to correct the wrongful conviction of individuals through the, the motion for new trial, as well as, the prosecutor's discretion with a thorough investigation, and I, I believe we do. And so I think that this is going to set the tone for conviction integrity, not just in Missouri, but around this country, where we have a similar mechanism to Philadelphia, where they're not, they don't have a mechanism that's filled out, but for the most part, if there's individuals that the prosecutor feels have been wrongly convicted, usually the parties, the courts, um, other criminal justice actors get together and they find a way to correct this wrongful conviction. Well, in this case, that did not happen. And so we're fighting to right the wrong of a wrongful convicted man, Mr. Lamar Johnson, who's been in prison for over 25 years. And so we prosecute need that ability. And so I, hopefully, um, the state of Missouri, we're testing, do we have the will to do the right thing? And I believe we do. In that case, what is the evidence that convinces you that he was wrongly convicted? Well, it was a sole ID case, and the sole witness recanted and said it was no way they identified Mr. Lamar Johnson. Um, also, we discovered payments to that sole witness for over $4,000 that was never disclosed to the defense during the trial. There also was a uh, witness that was a jailhouse um, informant that they used in the trial that their criminal record and extensive uh, credibility issues was never disclosed to the defense. Um, there was also um, unconstitutional police tactics that were never disclosed to the defense of how that person's, uh, Mr. Lamar Johnson's statement was garnered through um, uh, police tactics that are not appropriate in any setting today or prior. So those are some of the issues that we discovered that we feel that Mr. Lamar Johnson um, is wrongfully convicted. Also, we have two individuals that wrote letters saying that it was no way Mr. Lamar Johnson was there because they were there and they did it. So we have two individuals that actually admitted to doing it a long time ago. And so the only um, eyewitness that could place Mr. Lamar Johnson at the crime scene with cancer, so we have no other we have no DNA. So he's a wrongfully convicted person based on our 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 extensive investigation. We um, uh, evaluating the case, um, going through and we uh, uh, talking to the witness in the case, and the witness is consistently saying that Mr. Lamar Johnson he's he did not identify him or could pick him out in any lineup. 
So why is it then that the attorney general is fighting this? Well, that's a good question. Um, and that's a question that's asked for the attorney general. But what I, what I say is it's called uh, legal bullying. It's about, not about a wrongful convicted man. It's about whose turf it is in terms of um, when it, how do you, uh, where do you take this wrongful conviction information? And the attorney general is saying post-conviction release is only in a habeas corpus type of procedure. Well, we're saying it's a motion for new trial, and we're saying that the prosecutor, the prosecutor has a mechanism. Well, Missouri is unclear what that mechanism is. So instead of really focusing on this wrongfully convicted man, the attorney general has made it about um, illegal bullying and whose land it is, and I believe it is of the right of the prosecutor when they find out that someone in their jurisdiction through a trial has been wrongfully convicted we have a duty as ministers of justice to correct their wrongs. So I believe that it is the prosecutor's lane. And so that's what we're arguing about. And, you know, one of the things that's really vexing to me, uh, and we've been talking to people across the country uh, involved in wrongful conviction cases, is how difficult it is to get these people out, even when there's very compelling evidence that they didn't do, do the crime. I mean, how do we fix this thing? I mean, that's why this case is about, do we have the will? Do we have the will to do the right thing in the state of Missouri? And like I said, I, I believe we do. Because no one wants a wrongfully convicted individual to be held in prison if they did not commit the crime. No victim wants that. So if we really are, we truly care about our criminal justice system and we want to have faith in our criminal justice system, then that includes correcting wrongful conviction. And so I think that we just, we have to, this, this case is going to determine do we have the will? And I believe we do. I have hope in our system and I have hope that no one, even the Attorney General, cannot deny that Mr. Lamar Johnson is, 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 is not guilty. Um, and, and then I want to go back more broadly uh, to the work of your office. Uh, what types of reforms have you attempted to uh, put into place? Uh, I guess you've been in there for four years, so uh, you've had a fair amount of time to try to implement some things. Yeah. We've done a lot. I mean, so much to talk about. Um, I mean, we've been on the cutting edge of really addressing, like I said, public safety harm reduction. We believe that in order for us to really hold people accountable, we want to focus our resources on those serious and violent individuals that prey on our community. So we traditionally prosecute violent individuals, but at the same time, we know there's a lot of nonviolent individuals that are in our criminal justice system, and we want to make sure they don't go further in the system. So we've created a lot of alternative programs. And people always say, well, why would you care about diversion and alternatives? Well, that's about accountability and it's about public safety. And what we're doing is, is addressing, like I said, those broken systems, the broken educational system, the broken healthcare system. We have individuals who are addicted. And what we say is, hey, jail cell is the cure for addiction. So we're the first prosecutor's office, I think one of the rare around this country that have actual uh, uh, opioid diversion program, drug education program which was created by addiction physicians. I don't know if you know, in Missouri, we have more opioid deaths than murders. And we created this class where basically 
we have addiction physicians give information of, of safe, um, one, identifying a drug overdose, handing out Narcan. We, we're giving them the information they need to protect themselves or their loved ones, or for their loved ones to protect them. We're hooking them up with actual medication-assisted treatment in the community. And what we found, they've been more likely to follow up with treatment and to go further into getting help in the community, and they've been successful. So we're doing that. We have a diversion program inside our, our schools, dealing with elementary schools and under. We have some in um, uh we have a pilot program in a middle school, elementary school, and a high school. But why that's important is we found that that's where individuals who will go into the criminal justice system, they're recruited before the third grade. So we are deploying returning citizens, individuals who have had a life in crime as well as went into the criminal justice system, served long periods of time to be mentors to young people, not, not only to say you don't want to go and do the things they've done, but to be that mentor and to give them hope that they need they can, that they can go further in their education as well as cut them off from going further into the criminal justice system in any way or any system. And that's been successful. We work with um, an individual who served 30 years and he's one of our diversion mentors. He's a mentor for a lot of young kids and he actually is a diversion coordinator in our diversion program. We have a young offenders diversion program that we focus on 17 and 25 years old. Those individuals are more likely to be victims of crime as well as perpetrators of crime because why this is important is not just because their brain is still developing, but because we found that most of the people we deal with are victims today, perpetrators tomorrow, and they go in and out the cycle of victimization. So we are stopping that cycle of victimization that we can make us all safe. And we found that we give people jobs employment opportunities inside our office. We get them trauma-informed counseling, positive behavior therapy. We get them the, 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 the tools to be successful. They have been directed out of the criminal justice system, and we help their families. And that, one, prevents further criminal activity in that, in that community as well as with that family. So we're looking at crime on a holistic type of approach, but with a public health lens, but we're not sacrificing public safety by holding people accountable. And that's why, in terms of holding people accountable, we have to build trust in the criminal justice system. And that's why we do work with our law enforcement partners to, one, identify those crime drivers. But at the same time, we have to make sure we build trust with the criminal justice system. And so we have to also hold police accountable. That's why we have been on the cutting edge of credibility, too, in terms of having an exclusion list, which is like a break list in other jurisdictions. But we have to hold individuals accountable, even police who are not credible, that they cannot entertain cases with that credit, their credibility, that issue, that builds trust in the criminal justice system. I mean, that's, that's just some of the work we're doing. But we are doing a lot of the hard work. I mean, four years is not enough to, to implement a lot of the reforms that we, we are starting. And we look forward to really streamlining our, our prosecuting um, tactics and techniques to, one, build trust, as well as holistically heal and prevent crime. So that's, that's what we're doing, just a little bit of what we're doing. So one last question, um, and one of the goals of the reform movement is decarceration, and some have suggested, you know, 50%. How do we get there from the uh, perspective of a prosecutor? Well, I think that, you know, when you talk about decarceration, I think that we have to 
use the proxy's office as a way to one, rebuild and then store trust in the community because the proxy has a lot of power in terms of who we charge, what we charge, when we charge. And when we talk about incarceration and we are one to determine who comes into the system and who does not or alternatives. And I think that's why the diversion programs and alternative programs are crucial because we need to one, make sure we build outreach and, and social service support in the community. So so our only tool in the criminal justice system is not probation and perpetuating mass incarceration, which we all know is a a a a problem in our communities that are dealing with concentration of, of of violent crime. And when we start to expand these programs and we start to build trust in the community by meeting people where they're at, then we can look at how we as prosecutors, we are reducing the function of this traditional prosecution to only focus on those crime drivers, which are a small percentage of those individuals in the communities that we no, but we blanket our community in terms of how we police and how we prosecute traditionally. And so that's why when you look at a reform out of prosecutor, it's about being smart on crime and, and really focusing on those individuals. We got cut off right at the end of our interview with the chief prosecutor, Kim Gardner. We wanted to thank her and her staff for making the interview possible. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.